it's too late with Alan Mosley. So right before we started the show, our friend Mike Meharry told me that Bernie Sanders has suspended his campaign for president. No. Oh. No. Yeah, get We got to really work on those sound effects so we can do the little oh. <laughs> we need an audience button with a bunch of oh's. Yeah. Well, I mean, one time we had an audience here. Yeah. But you know what? Cool. Those were that was an unruly group. We shouldn't do that again. Nah, we should do that all the time. Wish we could I, I would love to do day. that all the time, but the yeah. last time we did it, we launched a nationwide pandemic. Yeah. See, so, that's what happened. I mean, it's all I didn't our mean fault. to. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. But you know, I, I like I've had this on my desk ever since. One of our one of our guests brought brought us an It's Too Late mug, yeah. although it's empty this week. Oh. And I'm really feeling kind of parched too. This is this is doesn't bode well. Are you so broke you can't afford water in that thing? I mean, I don't want any water out of your tap. I, I mean, <laughs> God knows where that comes from. So the official fiance of it's too late likes that smart water. Oh yeah, yeah. That that stuff's a little pricey. I got it. Yeah. Like yeah. It, it comes in the fancy. Like I mean, the packaging is nice and all that stuff. And I mean, it is good water. It's yeah. just man, it's not. Mm. It's it's. I mean, it, it, are you paying for the water or the bottle? Well, I mean, I, you're you're paying for the peace of mind and knowing that your water is superior to the pleb water. Like, okay. Like poor people, like there's there's the middle class water, like your Aquafina and your Dasani, and then your there's your poor store brand water where you get like forty eight in a case for like twenty cents. Yeah. That's what I drink. Yeah, that's that's but, our water. But then there's smart water, which oh, is yeah. like. Yeah. A buck fifty a bottle or something for water. Yeah, we, we should have our own brand pleb water, yeah. You, you well, you should have your own brand of goat milk. <laughs> I would if it wasn't all dumping down the drain. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah. No, don't stop I'm just gonna stop you right there because mm-hmm. I'm not gonna allow you to hijack nope. this episode We're not going rant there. about all the wasted goat <laughs> milk. I know I know that that's a serious issue. Yeah. I think we've covered that before. We have covered actually. that before. So we're not we're not doing that. No, we're that not gonna again. cover it. Um you know, you know, we do I, need to I cover. kind of feel bad because look, look at all this. That's what I was going. I know you're that. supposed to be clean shaven on a late night show. You know what you remind me of? What? You remind me of like Don Johnson from back in the old Miami Vice days. You know, that five o'clock shadow getting that rocking going on, you know? <laughs> yeah. I got to I got to tell need you something. A, you need a white blazer with a pink tie and we're I, set, you know? I got to tell you something. You are the only person ever who has said to me you know what you remind me of don johnson back during the miami <laughs> vice days you're the only one who's ever said that to me before just just the facial hair the rest i, I don't know what's that supposed to mean <laughs> i feel like you both of you guys are ganging up on me today and hey, right now hey. the audience is like what do you mean both of you guys uh, you're, you're gonna find out later but i feel like both of you guys are ganging up on me i will say this though you you've lost a lot of weight and you're looking a whole lot better than you used to so that's a good I, I have lost a yeah. lot of weight but i got like i got like 25 more pounds to lose that's a problem yeah but how many have you lost so far 25 uh about 40 actually dude yeah what are you complaining about that's like hero level loss man that's awesome yeah but you know this whole like the whole coronavirus pandemic thing that's like that's made it a little bit more of a struggle because maybe this is more of a man thing like let's Uh let's hear some of the ladies in chat like ring in on this (laughs) i feel like men are, are a lot more concerned about their routine being upset yeah like I'm, a, I'm a creature of routine, okay. and obviously all this stuff going on has really upset my my work routine, yeah. my just my daily routine. Your eating and habits. When you're up, when your routine is upset, that makes it harder to stick to things. Yeah, it really so what do you, does. You find yourself snacking a lot, or, or are you kind of trying to eat better? I mean, I don't know I if mean, you can eat better. We, when you have- 
So we've gotten a little bit of takeout. Like, like uh-huh. I was not eating a lot of restaurant type food. Okay. Um, we we've gotten some takeout. Um, of course, everybody's closed, but they do the curbside and the takeout. So we've oh, done yeah. some takeout. Um, I have not been eating as well, but I have maintained the weight so far. But the thing is, is I don't want to be, I still want to be cutting. I don't want to yeah, be yeah, maintaining. Yeah. Right. Why are we talking about this? I don't, I don't, I don't know what happened. Because weight loss is important to people. So, I mean, you know, it's it is important. Everybody but this wants is... to know how you did it, you know, because it's, you know, it's, you know you're a I'll, celebrity I'll you, and all. T- why not ask it? I'll, t- I'll tell you how I did it. This is, this is what you do. You okay. just, just be miserable all the time. <laughs> and the pounds will just fall right off. That's don't, it. Th- we're not looking to you for any sort of like <laughs> pep, pep talks. You, you asked know? a I mean, question. <laughs> I, I'm all right. I'm all right. This is we're. I'm done with you. Um, commercial break. Yeah, why not? All right, let's take a commercial break. If you're enjoying tonight's show, consider supporting the program by becoming a member of our Patreon. That's over at Patreon.com/slash Alan Mosley. Hey, uh, Blake, what time is it? It's time for... <laughs> it's the meme of the week. The hills are closed, my friend. Oh, golly. My, my favorite part is the, is the one in the back telling all the kids to get lost. <laughs> so and we were talking about this. Gloves. We were talking about this a little bit ago. So <laughs> when I was, I was the vice president of a theater group here in middle Tennessee for a couple oh, of yeah, years. Yeah. And I also did some community theater back in the day. Oh yeah. And I was in the sound of music. Oh. Now I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to let you take a guess. What, what part do you think I played in the sound of music? Uh, the, the Nazi. What is wrong with, okay, go ahead and pull up Mike. Might as well tell on Mike too. Why are you got just a, you just assume that's like, oh, there's Nazis in that movie. I bet Alan was one of those. Okay. So first of all, I was only like 16 when I was in the rendition of the sound of music. I was a so brown shirt. Jesus. <laughs> the goat in the goat segment, the lonely goat puppet. No, never mind. Okay. Nobody, I don't remember the sound of music. Okay, okay. So I I was Friedrich, which is the oldest boy out of the Von Trapp children. But you were 16, so you could pull it off. I was well, yeah, I was too old to be Friedrich. I was I mean Friedrich is 14. Yeah. Liesel is 16. Okay. I was 16, but I was playing Friedrich, who was 14. <laughs> and I also, like all the kids, like they they got Okay, so they so you know how when you're watching the movie, the kids are the perfect stair step, like the oldest is the tallest and the youngest is the shortest. Yeah. So I was a giant, right? Uh-huh. So I, so when I was 16, I was huge, <laughs> and I was way bigger than the girl that played Liesel. Oh so, wow! So like like you could see me on the screen. So normally when you watch the sound of music, the children look like this. Yeah. In in our sound of music, the children look like this. <laughs> It, it, yeah, so, but I mean, you know, it's community theater for God's yeah, sake. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you gotta you gotta work with what you're given, and in that case, it was me. Yeah, so, and you have to have quite an imagination. So, you know, they sing the the do re mi song, yeah. and all the different kids are a different part of the song. Uh-huh. I was fa. Great. So, like when they're when they're doing the little chorus, I just go fa. <laughs> that that was it. That and, and there and that was my history in community theater. Nice. There you go. I regret even telling. I regret sharing anything on this show, to be honest with you. 
Mostly because of you guys. <laughs> anyway, um, let's answer some viewer mail. And to help us this week with viewer mail is my good friend, co-host of Sports Ball on the Funny Broke Network, as well as like 18 other shows that are not on our network. But that's that's Mike's fault, I think. Yeah, yeah. Is Mike Meharry. Hi, Mike. Mike, how are you doing? I remember when we had sports. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, wow. You just took all the air out of this. <laughs> this is dead. You're welcome. All right. Anyway, all right. Let's go, let's go to the viewer mail. Uh, Rachel from Lufkin, Texas writes, Dear Alan and Blake uh, and, and Mike, what are Somalia's COVID-19 emergency preparedness plans? Um, I think she wrote into the wrong show. Yeah. I feel this was, this seems like a postcard from <laughs> Somalia question. Um, I'm, I'm willing to bet that they probably didn't have any preparedness plans, which means they're probably better than ours, to be honest with you. Possibly. What do you think, Mike? I think their preparedness plans was moved to America. <laughs> yeah. No sh- no kidding. <laughs> Good Why answer. don't you just move to America? Yeah. I wonder if they say that there. Yeah. Get some they of that free health care. <laughs> I don't know. It depends on if they can hear it over the sound of their like grumbling bellies. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I, th- that got really dark all of a sudden. Anyway, Eric from Gainesville, Florida writes, uh, go Gators, right, Mike? Uh, dear Alan and Blake and Mike, would you invest $1,200 in a toilet paper company? Mike, would you put any money in the stock market right now? Hell no. <laughs> we're we're going to save that for the next segment, but Eric, hold on to your Trump bucks. That's our, that's <laughs> yeah, our advice. Mega bucks. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan from Colville, Washington writes, Dear Alan and Blake and Mike, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I asked you about decorating my bathroom with skulls. What about skull bowls? We have to find some more fans for this show. Yeah. What, we skull find, bowls? We to get some different viewer mail. <laughs> Um, so, so anyway, yeah, this guy wrote in a couple of weeks ago and he said him and his wife were having an argument over whether or not they could put skulls in the bathroom as decorations. And apparently he's up the ante now to, can they have some decorative dishes? Uh, um, Mike, do you have any, um, dead body parts laying around the house as decoration? No, I was lost at skulls. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't even understand this question. Well, um, you this, see this is you should spend some more time on the program. This is the kind of this is the kind of audience we have. So there you go. Uh, Cynthia from Jacksonville, Florida. That sounds familiar. Writes, dear Alan and Blake and Mike. How many rolls of toilet paper makes one a hoarder? Um, how many how many rolls of toilet paper do you have in the house right now, Mike? Um, gosh, I don't even know. That's. <laughs> Wait, hold on. Do you not know because you're afraid of running out, or do you not know because you're a hoarder? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know because that's not my department. Okay, well, it's Cynthia from Jacksonville, Florida, is the one who asked the question. Okay, so ch- check that in, ch- check in with her and, <laughs> and let us know. Okay, so how many rolls of toilet paper makes one a hoarder? I don't think it's hoarding to have like, like I mean, first of all, if you're t- if a pack is like eight rolls, I don't think it's weird to have a couple of packs of toilet paper in the house. 24 packs recently. It was one of those hoarding. I mean, it's no. one pack. No. I'm starting to think that Mike is hoarding. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyway, Lyle from Lafayette, Louisiana writes, it's, so it's Lafayette. Lafayette. Or, no, it's Lafayette here. Yes. In, in Louisiana, it's Lafayette. Lafayette. Yeah. We talked about that before. Anyway. Uh, Lyle from Lafayette, 
Lafayette, Lafayette, Lafayette, Lafayette, Louisiana writes, uh, yeah, he's, he's, he's from down there, writes, uh, he's from New Orleans. Dear Alan and Blake and Mike, did we really land on the moon? So again, we really got to find some new fans. Yeah. 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 Um, Mike, do you think the moon landing was fake? No, I actually saw one of the Apollo, the very last Apollo launch. I saw it with my own eyes. Really? Well, there you go. Now, of course, I didn't see him landed on the moon, but that would have been an awful, awful big production. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so I definitely don't think it was fake. I mean, I definitely think the moon landing is real. Yeah. You know, the only reason that I like I, I, I want to say really quick, there are people out there that have a healthy distrust of authority and of government and all that. But you can't let that cloud your judgment to the point where you think everything is fake. Like right. if, if one of your friends walks up and says, uh, Hey man, I had McDonald's yesterday and you answer back with fake news. You got <laughs> picks or it didn't happen. Um, you must be a thrill at parties. Um, <laughs> uh, Mike, do you, do you know any people that are like that? Oh yeah. I, I had a, I had a feeling that you've had a run in or two with folks like that. All right, last one. Jeff from Gillette, Pennsylvania writes. It's it's Gillette, by the way. Not Gillette. Jeff explained this to us. So it's it's spelled like Gillette, the razor company, yeah. but without the E on the end. So he says it's Gillette. Gillette. So Gillette. Uh, I'm just learning about the country. Yeah, why not? Geography yeah. lesson 101, sure. Yeah. I'm trying to become more immersed in Americana. More edumacated. Anyway, Jeff from Gillette, Pennsylvania writes. Dear Alan and Blake and Mike. Uh, which of you is the better comedian? <laughs> Tell us a joke. I mean, I'm I'm far and away the funniest person out of our group. <laughs> right? I think that checks out. I'm not funny. <laughs> you are sometimes. Sometimes yeah. you're really funny. <laughs> Mostly I'm the straight guy. Yeah, yeah. Really? I, I would say that. I would say that. Hmm. Wife, my wife's funnier than all of us put together. But that's a that's a whole different ball of wax right there. What well, I should have just had her on. You should have. We could have talked about genealogy. That would that would have taken the show up about four notches. <laughs> so okay, I know I know that your wife is a genealogy expert, and can can she help me unravel the mystery of what type of mutt white I am from Europe? Probably. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I've just all, I was told by my family that I was Scottish and German, but I mean, all white people look the same. So how can you know? You could take the DNA test and then be in the, the database forever. Sure. I, it's can track you. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, I would, but I'm afraid it would come back positive for COVID-19. <laughs> anyway. There's this, your answer, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yeah. So that's what I am. I'm Scotch German COVID. And funny. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> this does this show feel long to you? <laughs> yeah, it's only fifteen minutes into it. Come on, this, I feel like we've good. been on for an hour and a half. <laughs> I I don't know. Maybe it's just me. These are strange times. Yes, they are. Would you say that these are unprecedented times? I heard, I saw somebody write that recently that the, that we were living in unprecedented times, and I feel like that that's an awfully strong statement. Would you say that this is unprecedented? Isn't every time unprecedented? I mean, we've not had this time before. Actually, we have. Right, right in the 1920s? Wasn't there like a, a big... Uh, Blake Blake doesn't get what you said. Unprecedented? 
This is the only time that it, that it has ever been 12.01 p.m. on April 8th, 2020. Oh, I get where you're going. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, Mike, you were right. You definitely are the straight guy. <laughs> um, commercial break? Sure. All right, we're going to take a commercial break, and after this, we're going to be back with our guest today, and you'll never guess who it is. We'll be right back. <laughs> Your ad could be playing right now, reaching thousands of potential customers. Sadly, it's not, but it could be. Find out how to be an advertised sponsor for It's Too Late with Alan Mosley. Email us at alan at funnybroke.com. So, um, our guest today, that you'll never guess... He's the National Communications Director of the Tenth Amendment Center, as well as a managing editor of Shift Gold News. Ladies and gentlemen, my co-host from Sportsball, it's Mike Meharry. Mike, how are you doing? Hi, again. Hi, again. Well, I mean, you know, people people don't realize that we, we filmed this out of order, so this is actually the first scene that we filmed, right? Yeah. Who are you? <laughs> Thanks. No, I'm, I'm the Nazi from The Sound of Music, jack off. Yeah, oh, that's what you heard. So anyway, Mike, I, I wanted to I wanted to start right off the bat. So we're we got two segments with you today. We're gonna do one dedicated purely to economic stuff going on, and then we'll do the second one for political. And and we're and we're talking specifically about the kind of the economic impact of the pandemic and the and the mandates and all the coronavirus news, and then the political impact uh, as well. Uh, and I and I want to start off with you had an article, uh, a commentary that was over at Shift Gold that was talking about what's the exit strategy. Uh, give, give our folks at home kind of a brief uh, brief overview of what you, what you meant by that commentary of, of the exit strategy. Well, I actually started thinking about it just in terms of like, when does the lockdown end? Like, nobody seems to have considered, are we just going to not ever see each other again forever? Because when you look at the reality of a virus, I mean, it's not going to completely go away. So it doesn't, it seems like we're ratcheting up the lockdown and nobody's talking about how we're we ever going to wind this back. But as I was thinking about that, I, I actually started thinking of about it more in terms of the economic exit strategy for the Federal Reserve. And, uh, you know, the Fed is really here. Here's the first thing that I think people need to wrap their head around. This isn't just about the coronavirus. And there are a lot of people who think that at some point President Trump's going to snap his finger and the economic situation is just going to go back to normal and everything's going to be fine. And that's not going to happen. The coronavirus was a pin that pricked a bubble that already existed, thanks to all of the things that the Federal Reserve has done in the past. So what has the Federal Reserve done this time around? Well, it's done the exact same things that it did to create the underlying situation that brought us to where we are today. So we're actually doubling down and getting more of the bad medicine that we got before. And it's interesting if you go back to 08, because at that time, when they started lowering interest rates to zero and they started doing this massive quantitative easing, which is basically just printing money, they said that, oh, this is temporary. You know, we've got an exit strategy. Well, we never exited the first time, and we certainly don't have an exit strategy for this time around. We're putting just trillions of dollars into the financial system with absolutely no concern with how that's ever going to be unwound. <clears throat> yeah, so I... 
I've seen a lot of people making kind of the analogies to, you know, the Great Depression and, and, and the economic impact. The, 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 what could be happening in the economy two or three months down the road after the coronavirus panic has kind of calmed down? Um, but I'm glad you mentioned 2008 because I, I know that's a lot fresher on everybody's mind. Um, so uh, one thing I, I'd like you to touch on is you already kind of talked about like some of the actions that the Fed has done over time, some of the things they did in 2008 and how we, we never really truly recovered from 2008, even though that's, it feels like that was just yesterday. It's 10, 12 years ago now, right? Um, but some people have talked about how the Fed is out of ammunition to deal with this crisis. What do they mean by that? Well, so in typical Keynesian economics, and that's the, the rule that we live under today, everybody's a Keynesian now. Uh, when you have an economic downturn, the prescription is to stimulate the economy. So you do that in a couple of ways. You do it through government stimulus, which is you know the cut taxes or hand out money, whatever, those, those types of things. And you also have monetary stimulus. And monetary stimulus is what's typically considered the Federal Reserve's ammo. And that typically consists of two things, lowering interest rates and uh, printing money, increasing the money supply, which allows more people to borrow more money to stimulate demand so we get out of the, uh, they call it an equity trap or a liquidity trap. So <clears throat> when you say that you're out of ammunition, well, where are we with interest rates now? We're at zero. In fact, we were pretty close to zero before coronavirus because they had already cut rates three times in 2019, which again goes back to the point that I was making that we were already in an economic, uh, problematic economic situation before coronavirus. Uh, so we're already at zero. I mean, it makes it's difficult to cut below zero. I mean, you can do it, but um, that's not good. And then the other option is quantitative easing, which is effectively printing money out of thin air. And uh, we already have printed more money. We've already done more quantitative easing in the last like three weeks than we had through all of the 08 financial crisis. So when they say that they're out of ammunition, it's like we're hurtling into the beginning of a recession. They've already done all of the things that they would normally do to fix a recession. Now, you, so you brought up, brought up uh, economic stimulus being kind of a Keynesian answer. Of course, everybody at this point has, has read and heard about uh, the CARES Act, the stimulus package that was passed, well, I guess about a week ago now, um, and, and so to the tune of a couple of trillion dollars. And, and a lot of the headlines read that you know, you're really looking at something like a $6 trillion stimulus, $4 trillion of that being with the Fed, and $2 trillion of that being passed by Congress. That was that was sold as it was. It's going to be cash relief to people and to businesses, and that we already covered on the show on a previous episode. Um, uh, a porkapalooza, just just the massive amounts of pork and special interest spending um, that was in the CARES Act. Uh, but at the end of the day, so all every, all the adults are getting twelve hundred dollar checks. That. What is wrong with sending everybody a $1,200 check uh, for the long-term economic outlook? And, and how can you possibly sell it to the public that that's not the right thing to do? Well, I don't know that I can sell it to the public because, you know, ultimately people want their MAGA bucks and, you know, <laughs> they think they're going to they're go out and spend this money. This is really, um, I think, the perfect storm for a currency crisis, for a severe devaluation of the dollar possibly even uh, hyperinflation. Peter Schiff actually said that we went from hyperinflation being the worst case scenario to being the most probable scenario. And the reason it's a perfect storm is you have the typical money creation, which in and of itself is inflation. The actual definition of inflation is increasing the money supply. When you increase the money supply, 
oftentimes one of the consequences of that is price inflation. Prices start to go up. We did not see that in the last uh, crisis for a couple of reasons. Some of them are technical. We won't get into those. But I think the biggest reason is, well, there are two big reasons. Number one, people thought that there was an exit strategy, which we just discussed. There isn't one. I think people are going to realize this time around that there isn't, that this is a permanent monetization of the debt, that this is a permanent uh, infusion of cash into the system. The second part of the storm is the fact that we are in a severe supply shock. So everybody's at home. Nobody's producing stuff. So in essence, you're putting more dollars out there into the economy that's going to be chasing the same amount of stuff. That is the textbook definition of price inflation. So what I think we're looking at, uh, if, if I was to rub my crystal ball, I think we're looking at a, a, a inflationary recession, which is what we had in the 70s, which they called stagflation, where you actually have uh, low economic growth or even negative economic growth along with increasing prices and inflation. It's not a good scenario. So uh, to expound on that a little bit, something, something you and I had talked about in the past, you had said the phrase to me that when, when these types of situations occur, it works its way through the financial sector first. And, and, and I know we all see on the news just the, the roller coaster that is the stock market. So, what, so, so, so let's say we, we've gone down the road 30 days, 60 days, whatever, and, and an economic crisis has, quote, worked its way through the financial sector. How does, that be, how does that begin to look to the average person on the street down the road? Well, I think the big impacts you're going to see, and, and this is in hyperdrive because of the nature of the the pin that's pricked the bubble. Normal circumstances, and we saw this in 08, all of this kind of unfolded over about nine to 12 months, okay? So you started seeing some rumblings in the uh, housing market and it started to uh, erode its way into the financial sector. And then we started to see unemployment go up and and then we saw the the contraction of economic growth. All of that happened over a, a long period of time. What we're seeing in this particular instance, because basically the government's told everybody just to shut down, is everything's on hyperdrive. So we're seeing those effects that you would normally expect to see a little bit down the road already with 10 million people having filed for unemployment in just two weeks. I mean, uh, the projection that I'm seeing, and this is from like people like the Fed, so this isn't the worst case scenario projection, this is the mainstream projections, we could have 34% unemployment by the end of July. That is uh, actually about 10% above the height of the Great Depression. Uh, so when we were talking about unprecedented earlier, this is truly unprecedented in terms of uh, in terms of an economic outcome. Outcome. I think what people don't understand is they think that again that we're going to snap our fingers and it's going to go away, that everything's going to be fine, that you know we'll all go back to work. That's not going to happen. Even now, businesses are are shutting down. They're never going to reopen. You're going to have rising unemployment. That's going to start creating that that people are going to hoard their money. You know, we're not going to have the demand. I think we're spiraling into what's going to be a very long-term, stubborn recession, uh, like unto the Great Depression with that type of unemployment and that type of lack of economic growth. Uh, We're going to see it peak faster and then linger longer. That's my my opinion. Of course, there are so many – I have to make the caveat that there are so many factors in the economy that – I could be wrong. There could be other things that intervene. Maybe the uh, you know maybe the stimulus does spike the stock market temporarily. Maybe the you know maybe there are some things that happen along the way. But I think ultimately we're still looking at that stag stagnation, that stagflation, that uh, that inflationary recession. 
Uh, I'm going to give you one more before we move on to uh, the, the commercial break. Uh, so you're the managing editor over Shift Gold. Uh, I, we had a question back in the viewer mail. Somebody was saying, hey, I'm getting my MAGA bucks. What should I invest in? Now, they were jokingly saying investing in a uh, toilet paper company uh, or the stock market in general. Um, is this a good time to invest in some other assets, say, for instance, some precious metals? In my never-to-be-humble opinion, yeah, I think if uh, – I, actually, I plan to invest at least some of my megabucks into gold and silver. Um, I, you know, If you look at history, when you have recessions, when you have inflation, it is good for gold. Uh, it's interesting if you look at 2008. Uh, in the run-up of 2008, when the stock market first started to crash, gold actually dropped. It dropped about 25%. And then from 2009 to 2011, it rose 106%. Silver was even higher. Silver rose like 400 and some percent uh, in that same time period between 2009 and 2011. So when you have this kind of quantitative easing, when you have money printing, it is good for commodities. It is particularly good for gold. Gold is the historic inflation hedge. So I would certainly be looking at precious metals as a way to preserve your wealth from a devaluing dollar. Um, Going out a little more broadly, I think a lot of people would recommend uh, more general commodities uh, because when the you know when you have dollar inflation, when you have an erosion of the purchasing power, then the price of things go up. So if you can invest in things like wheat or copper or uh, you know maybe even oil, although the oil dynamics are kind of weird right now because of the supply glut. But uh, commodities are typically good investments in time like this. And then, uh, you know, going even broader, maybe looking at foreign stocks that uh, would be shielded from the devaluation of the U.S. dollar. Uh, really quick before the break, uh, to wrap up this segment, where can people go to get some more information uh, from you on, on gold, on economic news, and uh, to uh, do a little business with Schiff? Well, you can go to shiftgold.com slash news and check out all of the uh, the writing that I'm doing on the subject. I usually put out two to three blog posts a day um, that cover typically stuff about the Federal Reserve. I recap a lot of what Peter Schiff is talking about. He's fantastic on this. Check out his podcast if you're interested in, in more of that. And if you're really interested in the investment side of it, if you want to get more information on how to invest in gold, what are the best products? Uh, how should it fit into your portfolio? You don't want to talk to me because I'm not a financial advisor, but you can call Shift Gold, 1-888-GOLD-160, or you can just uh, email them at info at shiftgold.com. And those guys are great. They're, uh, they're of like mind in terms of economic outlook, and, and they know these markets and understand the nuts and bolts way better than I do. All right, there you go. Uh, guys, Mike is going to stay with us for one more segment. We will be right back after this break. Blake, Blake, yes, yes. You didn't do the thing. 
because I was thinking about something else. Sorry. Oh my god. I just I was thinking about a question that I had for Mike actually. Well, no. But well, you've lost your question privileges cuz you didn't do the uh. Uh. The, no. Does that count? <laughs> you can't just arbitrarily uh, uh like 20 minutes after the bumper. Sorry. Oh. Well. You know, there was a there was that really intense commercial break right there yeah. before we came back on. And that is for a program called Path to Liberty made by uh, Michael Bolton over there at the 10th Amendment Center. Right. You know, I know somebody else over at the 10th Amendment Center. It's the National Communications Director of the 10th Amendment Center. It's Mike Meharry. Mike, are. welcome back. Wow. Wow. <laughs> wow, thanks for having me back. Well, <laughs> it's been great. So I I want to I want to hit a little transition question from our economic to our political. So okay. you you've got you've got federal action You've got state governors all over the country, mandates left and right. Um, we Now, we've felt this right here at the studio, Governor Bill Lee here in uh, Tennessee, mandating that non-essential businesses be closed. Um, I found out that I was non-essential, Mike Meharry, and that means I can't pay my bills. Um, wow. That's, I mean, I, I don't even know if I have a question so much as to say, this really sucks. What are your thoughts? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sorry that you're non-essential. Um, I probably am too, but I work from home already, so it doesn't matter. Yeah. I mean, you know, I was talking to a guy the other day, a friend of mine, and, and he was talking about the fact that he, you know, he thought he was handling all this pretty well. He said he just broke down. He was talking to his wife and he started crying. And that, you know, I felt bad for him because there are so many people that are going to suffer from the repercussions of this whole, uh, lockdown. And what really bothers me is that we've rushed headlong into this. And nobody's counted the cost. It's like, oh my God, we have to we have to save ourselves from coronavirus. And nobody's thought about the the cliff we're running off of to get away from coronavirus. And uh, this is going to cause a lot of uh, a lot of anguish for a lot of people. And it, it's you know it's not funny. Yeah, you know something that's kind of bothered me a lot is that I, I guess we just live in very binary black and white political times. That you know if if you ever say anything nice about one camp then then you're evil and you belong to that camp and vice you know and vice versa you can only belong to one one collective you can't you can't have any individual thoughts and i think that that's a shame because it's it's not mutually exclusive to believe these two things that that covid-19 is serious and that people are are physically health wise at risk uh, and vice versa you can't just shut down the economy for weeks slash months at a time and not expect there to be, uh, you know, I don't know, tons of bankruptcy and business closures here in the next 30, 60 days, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and every business closure, every person on unemployment, you know, um, I, I love this phrase. And Carrie Baldwin uh, is the first person I heard say this. I'll give her credit. But the economy is life-sustaining. And Every closed business, every shut down uh, uh, restaurant, you know, all of these things impact individual lives. They depend on those to make a living. And I thought about this the other day. You know, if you if you go back into time and you imagine something like this in the in the 1700s, there's no way that people could just say, oh, my God, there's a smallpox epidemic. So I'm not going to go till my fields this month. (laughs) Everybody would die. Yeah. And because we live in a in a world where we have a more diversified economy and we have the division of labor, we don't see the impacts as quickly. But, you know, I was in the grocery store yesterday and, uh, you know, shelves are still empty. Prices are starting to go up. And we all assume it's because people are hoarding. I think there's a lot more supply chain breakdown already happening than we're being told. And it's only going to get worse. And, you know, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that in 
you know, six to 18 months, we're talking about bread lines because how are people going to sustain themselves when you have 30% of the population unemployed? Well, you know, something that I had said on a, on a previous episode was that, you know, paying my bills is essential. If, if, you, if you call up any of my creditors right now, I'm pretty sure they'll tell you that it's rather essential that Alan pays his bills on time. And so by that logic, I'm pretty sure that we are all essential workers. I mean, you know, I, your bills don't magically go away. Now, I know that there's people out there saying, oh, well, they ought to just freeze rent. No evictions, yada, yada, yada. But I mean, that's just passing the buck, right? I mean, at, at, at some point, you have to kind of have this reckoning on people have to go back to work. Um, I know you had already talked about, you know, what's the exit strategy? We're not going to do this forever. Um, purely from the political angle, and, and we'll get into a little bit of Tenth, uh, tenth Amendment news as well. Um, how, does, how does one reckon with the fact that, well, I'm not sick, it's not that I'm missing work because I'm ill. It's because my government has told me I can't go earn a living. Whatever job it is I had, I'm not allowed to do business. If I do, they'll, they'll arrest me or they'll, they'll say it's a misdemeanor. They'll, they'll find me the entire value of my Trump bucks or my MAGA bucks, as you like to call them. I mean, I just, I, I, I don't know. I, I guess I'm just talking more out of frustration in, in this segment that people have to feel a little bit lost because they're, they're, I mean, in, in very, in, in very serious terms, they're having the guns of the state pointed at them and telling them you can't go to work today. Uh, Where does that leave you? What do you do now? Yeah. You know, it was interesting. uh, A couple of weeks ago, you were hearing a lot of the World War II rhetoric. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Trump was talking about we're at war with the coronavirus and we have to have shared sacrifice like we did in World War II. And yet what they're forgetting is that life was miserable during World War II. There were rash there was rationing. People were literally, you know, giving up their savings in order to buy war bonds to fund the war. Taxes went through the roof. So people felt the pain of World War II. They're talking about sacrifice now, but they want you to believe that you're not going to feel any pain. That we're going to give you some MAGA bucks and we're going to give all the businesses loans and everything's going to be okay. And again, we're going to snap our fingers and the economy is going to bounce back. That's not going to happen. Sacrifice means you actually feel pain. And, and I think if people realize that, they would probably be a little bit more resistant to the draconian lockdown that we have. And I, you know, I'm not a virologist and, and I'm not going to try to argue about, uh, you know, social distancing or the how bad, you know, the coronavirus actually is. That's not my area of expertise. I do know the economy, though. I do know that we're creating a massive problem that is going to last for decades. And it really bothers me that absolutely nobody in any kind of decision-making capacity is taking that into consideration. In fact, if you do, well, you know, obviously, if you care about the economy, then you want grandma to die. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Not to admit, not to, you know, ignoring the fact that you're, you're basically telling thousands of people to go home, you're not essential. It's okay if you starve. Yeah, I mean, well, so there's a few other different political angles that I, I, I want to touch on before we wrap up today. Uh, so you've done a lot of work on surveillance, and, and I know that we're kind of doing a little bit of a primer of a, of a, of a special thing that we're going to be doing this weekend. Um, but you, you hear all these just, just wild stuff in the news. It seems like every single day there's a new outrage, a new some expert on some channel said such and such. You've, hear, you've been hearing a lot of calls of people saying, um, we should be demanding testing of everyone. Um, we should sh- we should make people go into a database where they're flagged as being uh, ill or not ill. 
Um, we, we, should, we should be taking people from their families, potentially, if they're sick so that they can't spread the virus. I mean, that, that's, that's some Orwellian stuff right there, Mike Meharry. It is, and we have the Orwellian surveillance state to make that possible, right? It's very easy to find people in this day and age because we're all in the facial recognition databases and, and we're all, uh, you know, can have our license plate tracked and we, the police departments have stingrays so they can lock into your cell phone and, and find you. And so this is what I've been warning about for, what, four or five years uh, since I've really gotten into this whole surveillance issue is the fact that you know, people want to tell you, oh, well, if you don't have anything to hide, you have nothing to fear. Well, you know, it may be a day coming that you have to hide the fact that you have, have a, a fever or else you're going to get drug off to the uh, the fever internment camp. Uh, and I say that, in, you know, kind of trying to be funny and trying to make the light of a of a kind of a scary situation, but these databases existed and this surveillance state exists. And, uh, you know, there was an article that came out the other day about the whole uh, continuancy of government. Imagine that the government has made plans to survive, even if we don't, you know, because the government's the most important thing. And um, part of this COG, continu continuancy of government, part of these plans is they have this huge database filled up with people who they consider to be dangerous. Mm -hmm. uh, which could get interesting if there's any kind of social unrest. And I'm pretty sure that all of us are considered dangerous by the government because we don't tow the government line. That's what dangerous is to the government. And uh, so, yeah, the, the whole surveillance state thing, uh, that's why Orwell feared it, because the moment that government wants to crack down for whatever reason, then the apparatus is in place to make that easily achievable, easily possible. And what's even scarier is watching and knowing the fact that most of my neighbors would gladly report me and watch me get loaded into the box car and probably stand on their porches and cheer. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm glad you brought that up. I, want, I wanted to touch on that next. So we've we've talked on the show a couple of times about you, you've seen like the national hotlines and, and all the Karens that people like to make fun of, of, of reporting one another. Something that I've said on the show several times that I've taken heat for is that the, 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 the feds are not going to have to shut anybody down because they'll have their neighbors do it for them. They'll have your neighbors do it for them. And this is like... Everyone likes to think that they're the hero in their story, you know, like everyone likes to think that, oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have told the Nazis where the Jews were hiding. You know, I, I wouldn't do that. I would, I would have helped the slaves escape to the North, uh, along the underground railroad, but we, we have real life evidence to the contrary. And, and, and I want to be clear, I'm not saying that everyone is evil in nature. I, what I'm saying is, is I, I think that I think that fear and political pressure makes people do things that, in hindsight, they may realize that they weren't the hero in the story after all. What, what do you have to say about that? Yeah, I think fear is the big key. I, I think that when people are scared, they will allow and do things that they wouldn't do under normal circumstances when they're thinking rationally. And so all you have to do is convince somebody that something is dangerous. Convince somebody that something is dangerous and they will do anything that they can to stop it. So the person with coronavirus now is dangerous. So we have to tell on them. We have to make sure government cracks down. Well, 
it's only a couple of steps away from that to what the Nazi Germans did. They said that the Jews were dangerous, and the next thing you know, they're exterminating Jews. Uh, and, you know, somebody's go, oh, Mahari's comparing coronavirus with Nazism. I'm not comparing the two things. Use some thinking. But what I am saying is that the mechanism that makes that possible is exactly the same. Fear, as you said, political pressure, and uh, I have to protect myself. So therefore, I'm going to do whatever I have to do to push this danger away. And it goes to kind of this deeper thing that we see throughout human history of scapegoating. Uh, human beings tend to scapegoat. And there's some interesting uh, philosophical thinking about why this happens, You know, the psychological release that scapegoating does, the sense of protection that it gives us to, to scapegoat a group and marginalize them and, and uh, effectively send them away or even kill them. Uh, that is what you see in situations like this. So, um, you know, it's, it's a thing that we all need to be aware of and, you know, it's fun to make fun of the Karens, but they're actually very dangerous because they're being driven by very base, uh, impulses and it can lead us down past it. We don't want to go down. Uh, I'll, I'm going to give you one more before we take our final commercial break. Over, over your shoulder there, I saw your book, Constitution Owner's Manual, The Real Constitution the Politicians Don't Want You to Know About. I have that memorized because I've read it. I've read it out loud, read as it. a matter of fact. Hopefully that out loud reading will be available for the general public soon. We'll, we'll get you out of here on this one. So can, can you remind our audience at home uh, what article in the Constitution where it says – uh, if there's a national emergency such as a pandemic, then none of this counts. Right. The emergency clause. Yeah, that's uh, that's not there. Mm. In fact, you know, most of what is going on, the responses should be at the state and, and at the local level. And I think at the local level, because uh, the situation at various localities is very different. The situation here in Nassau County, where I am in Florida, is very different from Duval County, just one over. We have like 26 cases in our county, and they have uh, hundreds down in Duval County because it's more populous. Why would you have the same policy for both counties? And so it's even stupider to have the same policy for the entire United States. And that's why the Constitution created this decentralized system, because the founding fathers, in their wisdom, recognized that there were only certain things that the general government could do. That was national defense, foreign trade, and foreign relations, and that other things were local and should be handled at a local level. So the structure of the Constitution helps uh, bring about decentralized solutions for problems like this. But because we've abandoned that system, now we just look to Donald Trump. Well, I know I do. Well, I know I, I just looked at Mike. I just looked at Mike Meharry. <sighs> It's, 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 it's time for us to head to our, our final commercial break, but before we go, Mike, where can people find more information about you and your book? Go to best place to go. Wait, hold on. What was that again? What? Huh? Wait, what, what was that again? <laughs> Sorry. I got confused. My brain stopped. I'm going to give you one link that you can go okay. to. Constitutionownersmanual.com. That link will take you to the page that has all the information about how, how to buy the book, all the different formats you can get it in. It also happens to take you to my broader website. So once you're there, you can go to the other areas and learn all about things Michael Meharry. All right. And, and music, by the way. And, and music, and yes. Music. A new music video. I made a music video yeah. called Six Feet Apart featuring uh, Kentucky Governor Andy <laughs> Bashir. I feel like that when you moved to Jacksonville, you should have left that all behind. Yeah, I know, but my kids are there, so. Yeah. 
Aren't you still? I, I, I'm I'm sorry. I know we're running late. Aren't you still being sued by Kentucky or just by yes. Lexington? Yeah, the city of Lexington. Okay. Yes, I, I'm sure that that's going to get drug, dragged out longer now because we can't have court. Yeah. I don't think court's essential, <laughs> or at least not suing Mike Meharry. I'm I'm happy to report here on the show suing Mike Meharry is not essential. <laughs> Guys, we will be right back after this final break. Just be happy. Just be happy. Just do it. <laughs> like our page on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash funnybroke. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm Twitter at Alan M. Mosley. Finally, subscribe to us on YouTube. That's youtube.com slash funnybroke. So, uh, really quick bit of news before we go. Uh, this Sunday is a bonus episode of It's Too Late with Alan Mosley that's going to feature a panel discussion of people all across the country that are going to be joining us to talk about kind of their impressions on, on the, the shutdowns and the mandates and what things are looking like in their, their neighborhood. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about how everyone's holding up and hopefully uh, ways that we can help each other out. Uh, we're going to have, uh, from the West Coast, Michael Bolton in the 10th Amendment Center. Then there's going to be Suzanne Sherman from Utah, our favorite uh, lawyer-turned-prepper of the Wasatch Report. Uh, yours truly will be hosting along with Sherry Voluntary, who's out in East Tennessee. And then finally, uh, Mike Meharry from Jacksonville, Florida. So you got all across the country represented on the, that panel. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, so look for that. That is going to be Sunday at 7 o'clock Central Time. I'm sure we'll have tons of uh, technical problems. So it's probably going to be like 7.15. It'll be 7 o'clock Central Time on Sunday. Um, I hope to see you there. It's going to be a lot of fun. Thank you so much for listening to another episode. And we will see you next week. Next week.